This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. So today for our hot question of the day, we're talking about the issue of vaping. This has been a hot topic the last couple of weeks. We've been hearing about how in the United States, they've had hundreds of cases now of these serious lung illnesses. And the common denominator among those cases is that vaping was involved here. They've had at least six deaths reported. So coming up just after the 1030 news, we're going to speak to uh, an expert on this topic, a researcher out at UBC who has been studying this vaping issue four years. He's gone to conferences. He's talked to other researchers about this. And it may seem like these illnesses kind of came out of nowhere. But as he he's going to point out to us and tell us about how really the truth is, these illnesses have been happening for a while, but there hasn't been categories for health officials uh, to put them into, right? They The similar set of circumstances are to have so many of them. And that's actually what's happened now. They can look back and go, oh, now we know what this is. We didn't know before. Now we have a category to put this into. So all of this attention being paid to this has resulted now in U.S. President Donald Trump saying that he intends to ban flavored uh, vaping, like flavored e-cigarettes, as a step towards trying to combat what is happening with all these health issues there. So for our hot question of the day, we're asking you, should Canada consider following suit? Do you think yes, this is for good health. We need to do this. Or do you think, no, let people choose what their habits are, even if they are bad habits. So go to Sarah 980 or at CKNW on Twitter to cast your vote on this. You can email me, simi at cknw.com. And use our buzz line, 604-331-2899. Just a quick note here. I know there's a lot of interest in the story that has been developing this morning about the senior RCMP intelligence director who has now been arrested, facing multiple charges, not just under the criminal code, but under the Secrets Act as well. Lots of questions about this, of course. We are going to be talking with Global News investigative reporter Sam Cooper coming up just after the 11 o'clock news to get more information on that. So stay tuned. Uh, it's a bit of a scramble right now to even figure this out because it was just found out about an hour or so ago. So we will definitely have more on that for you. Just uh, stay tuned for that. In the meantime as well, we want to talk about a story that seems to have been almost like snowballing in recent weeks as well. Everywhere you seem to look in the news these days, you are hearing and reading about concerns over vaping. Hundreds of people in the United States facing serious lung illness. Six have died as a result. And here in Canada, while we haven't had any official reports of the illness yet, but that doesn't mean, as we're going to hear momentarily, that it hasn't been happening here. We are, of course, in Canada preparing to allow the sale of vaping products in our legal marijuana market coming up this fall as well. We know that health officials here, particularly in BC, like Dr. Bonnie Henry, uh, who told us earlier this week that they are uh, monitoring the situation very closely. Now, the vape market in Canada alone is estimated to be worth something like a billion dollars, much more so, obviously, in the United States as well, where it has been very popular. So how did this all get started? Well, back in, let's see, July, I guess it was, they started to get reports in the U.S. of this lung illness uh, in the the Midwestern states. And then health officials said by that time, about 380 confirmed and probable cases have now been noticed. And we're talking about 36 states and one U.S. territory that have seen these cases. 
Some of the symptoms include uh, shortness of breath, fatigue, chest pain, diarrhea, vomiting. And as a result, they believe this is because of inhalation of some kind of chemical or caustic substance. So this week, we also heard U.S. President Donald Trump say he's going to move to ban flavored vaping products. So would leaders here consider doing the same? Conveniently, we have an election going on, so we can ask them these questions and make sure that they give us an answer on that. So that's what Global News did. Asked each of the leaders their thoughts on this. And we'll start with NDP leader Jagmeet Singh. All our decision when it comes to to any sort of product that's in the market should be based on evidence and should be based on the science. And if we have some science and evidence that point to a problem, then we should respond. And and right now, that science is, is unclear. Uh, it's getting more clear every day, I would say, because health officials are getting a bigger, bigger grip sort of on this problem. Here is Conservative leader Andrew Scheer. Our government took measures uh, to ensure that uh, tobacco products were properly regulated and uh, to, to make it um, uh, more difficult or less enticing for young children or young teens to uh, take up uh, tobacco habits. So we're going to continue to support measures that do exactly that. Okay, and Liberal leader Justin Trudeau. We're always looking uh, to do more to keep Canadians safe, but our decisions will be made uh, based on evidence, based on data, and we will have more to say as Health Canada continues to do its work of keeping Canadians safe, including uh, from uh, the dangers of vaping. All right, so those are the three kind of major party leaders at this point. I'm sure at some point we'll hear from Elizabeth May on this as well. Uh, but the question is, like, in Canada, are we closely following this? And why didn't? why are we only kind of hearing about these cases now? So a few moments ago, I had a chance to speak about the association between vaping and lung illnesses with Dr. Christopher Carlston. He is a professor at the UBC Faculty of Medicine and the Canada Research Chair in Occupational and Environmental Lung Disease. And here's what he had to say. Dr. Carlston, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this today. Have you been following along with all these stories of this kind of unknown lung disease that we're hearing about? Oh, certainly. Um, I've been uh, following it very carefully. And what is it that you have learned from this, from what you managed to uncover? Well, it's it's an evolving story, but I think the key points are that the issue of vaping-related lung disease is at least, if not more, serious than we had feared um, over the last couple of years, as, as several of us had been raising concern given what we'd seen um, in the literature and at conferences, uh, et cetera. So it, it's, it's coming to uh, a head, at least um, uh, it, looks, it looks like the evidence for the harms of, of vaping um, are becoming stronger and stronger. So were you seeing stories about this, uh, like, you know, in the last couple of years, and was there just not enough attention paid to it, or is this a brand new phenomenon? Well, I think it's it's. I see it like this. I I've been to conferences internationally. Um, spoken to my colleagues. I'm in I'm in the research field where we look at the effects of inhaled exposures, um, and so these are my colleagues, and we talk frequently. And the the last really three years um, have seen evidence in conferences for toxicity of these products. And some of these studies were in animals, uh, so they weren't necessarily the same kind of evidence that uh, has been seen in the last uh, few weeks or published really in the last few weeks. But I think we were concerned and justifiably concerned. And really in the last few weeks, it's that uh, in the U.S. in particular, the, the community has mobilized its energy to more carefully look at 
the the clusters because these cases exist generally, and it's only when when the resources are are put to adding all the information in a very careful way that the patterns emerge. That's right. always been the case. That's been the case with all kinds of illnesses forever. It's just, you know, you, you can't see it unless you look carefully. Right. And I think that's the part that people are trying to wrap their head around this time is that these cases may well have been happening over the last three, four, five years, but they weren't categorized. They weren't kind of grouped together. That's right. And, and so some organizations, including uh, some here, in Vancouver are starting to do what's called retrospective assessment. And, and retrospective means going back in time. And it's not as good as, as in the current uh, time where the evidence is more fresh, but, but this is a technique that will be used because it is important to understand this. It, regardless, however, uh, the problem clearly exists. The exact magnitude is still a bit unclear, uh, but we're, we're grappling with it. Do you think that we've had cases here in BC as well? Well, to be fair, we don't have a documented case. We don't have a case that meets the strict definition. However, I personally think it's hard to imagine that there's anything particularly different about the U.S. There's lots of work going on every day now since it's happened to understand, is there some product line that's only in the U.S. or for some, some reason that's something contaminated only in the U.S.? That speculation Generally speaking, I don't think that there's a strong argument that this has happened only in the U.S. I think the much stronger argument is that the investigation has been more thorough in the U.S. Right. What are the, the signs and symptoms here? Like the, If it's vaping that is doing this, what is it about vaping that is potentially causing this problem? Well, that's the problem because the answer is that there's lots of things in vaping that could be potentially causing it. That's why it's going to be so hard to... Uh, to fix it short of getting rid of vaping altogether. But there are, there are suspects. So um, there are chemicals in, in the e-liquid, which is the liquid in the device. Um, that ha- These are the ones I was alluding to before when I said uh, the meetings I've been to uh, in the last couple of years. There are chemicals. One, one, for example, is called cinnamaldehyde. It gives it cinnamon flavor. Uh, there's another one called diacetyl, which gives a popcorn flavor. These are actually well-known. Uh, to be toxic to the lungs, and we've been talking about it really for years, but as, as you suggested, it just wasn't something that got people's attention enough, apparently. Uh, there are other possibilities, such as the e-liquid or the device itself that carries the e-liquid being contaminated with uh, organisms, bacteria or fungi. Um, that's, that's another possibility, but there's lots of chemicals in the uh, liquid, and also people will um, modify them. Uh, and, and add chemicals. So right. it, it, that's that's how complex the problem is. I guess, like, when I'm listening to this and reading about it, I just I shake my head because I think, how did we ever think that inhaling any kind of chemicals, even if it's like artificial flavors and all that, into our lungs was a good idea? Well, I mean, one answer to your question, and it's not flippant, but it's very serious. How did we think it? We thought it because these are heavily marketed. They're heavily marketed yeah. by all of the traditional uh, marketing tools where you have youth looking very happy, looking like it's the cool thing to do, um, you know, in any any casual setting. And, you know, marketing works. Obviously, we know that uh, marketing works. So that's a big reason why we've gotten here. Is it too, is the genie out of the bottle though? Like, is it, can we still put it back in? Is it possible for the, you think the government to, any government to have a crackdown oh, on this? Oh, for sure. Yeah. 
Absolutely. I mean, it all, it's all about the laws at their disposal, uh, excuse me, at their disposal and what they can do. But for sure, I mean, Michigan just did it. Michigan banned these products entirely. You probably heard that uh, at the federal level in the U.S., there's consideration for some, some ban. I mean, it, it, it really depends. The devil's in the details. So you can ban certain flavorings like has been talked about in the U.S. I don't think it's quite come out yet, but that's what, that's what they've been talking about. Um, you can ban the product itself entirely. Uh, it all depends on how much discretion the public health agency and the government has. Right. So when you look at what's happening in Canada, then, that we're kind of watching warily what's happening down in the States, what would you tell health authorities here? Well, my, my big message is really the prevention principle, which is that it's much smarter to prevent than, than treat or cure. And so in the short term, I don't see why we don't take a more aggressive stance and get the product off the marketplace until more of the research can be done. Now, the, in fairness, the countervailing argument, which, which I think needs to be considered, is that there are people that are using this product uh, to try to get off of smoking. Right. Um, and that's a legitimate thing to consider. It's a very complex issue. It's not nearly as black and white as people would make it think. It's not some miracle that you get on e-cigarettes and suddenly you stop smoking. Uh, the effectiveness of that varies widely, but it is something that there is some evidence for. The big caveat that I think doesn't get spoken of enough is that there are other products that deliver nicotine to help people get off cigarettes. They've been around for a long time. They work. They're proven uh, nicotine replacement, whether it's gums, lozenge, et cetera. And so it's not as if this is suddenly the only thing that's ever given a different form of nicotine to help people get off smoking. It's just one that's much more heavily marketed and much more in vogue and fashionable right now. So I, there's not actually a, a strong argument to say that we need to keep these things in the marketplace for some kind of compelling health reason. All right. Dr. Carlson, thank you so much for your time on this today. All right, Jimmy. Thank you. That's Dr. Christopher Carlston. He's a professor at the UBC Faculty of Medicine and the Canada Research Chair in Occupational and Environmental Lung Disease. He has been hearing stories of this kind of these lung problems, researching kind of the vaping effect on people and the health effects on that uh, for a few years now. And he says it's time for us to seriously consider some other options. Let's talk more about this developing story that we're hearing about this morning. The fact that the RCMP has is charged one of its own with several offenses under Canada's official secrets law. So the RCMP is saying that Cameron Ortiz has been charged under three sections of the Security of Information Act and two uh, criminal code offenses. And they're saying the charges stem from activities that are alleged to have occurred during his tenure as an RCMP employee. So the investigation is ongoing. Uh, The RCMP aren't making much more comment than that, but we wanted to find out more about this. So joining us now is Sam Cooper, our national investigative journalist for Global News. Sam, thanks so much for being here. Uh, You're welcome, Simi. When did you first hear about this? Well, this this broke in national media this morning, and uh, it, it's obviously a, a huge story with massive implications. On top of that, it's it's happening during a federal election, and I'll just add that I've been surprised that uh, the potential influence of foreign powers on this election and Canada in general is a huge concern that I haven't seen very much coverage of. So it's it's quite interesting. This breaks right now. 
we've been, uh, I have to say, working uh, fast, uh, digging deep with uh, a number of people in Ottawa in our bureau, trying to get the most up-to-date information. As you say, the RCMP is saying little, but we're digging into the background of the accused uh, in terms of his academic background, his connections uh, to China. He, he reportedly speaks Mandarin and is an academic uh, with expertise on uh, computers, cyberspace, counterintelligence. So we're learning a lot and we're trying to confirm mm-hmm. it as we go. But it's, it's just an, it really an incredible story. It really is. So what do we know about the investigation that led to this? All we know at this point is we're told that it's a, a, a long-running national security investigation, multi-pronged, that is looking at different areas, uh, as you said, criminal charges, uh, information security charges. So it, what we can gather from that little bit of information is uh, it seems to indicate the, the access to uh, cyber, the cyberspace world, which would be a lot of sensitive information that could concern high-level government activities in Canada, law enforcement information. Uh, It could even uh, be information on on individuals. We don't know much except that the charges seem to relate to the sharing or obtaining information from computers. And so when we connect the docs, we look at his level of expertise on East Asia, ability to speak Mandarin, and we are told he was an elite advisor to the former uh, commissioner, Bob Paulson of the RCMP, on security issues with a lot of influence in government and the RCMP. Again, it, it's incredible how impactful this could be, but we don't know very much right now. Right. Can you think of any other case, Sam, was somebody as high ranking as this was charged in this fashion? That's a great question. And I, I can't uh, right away. The thoughts that come to mind are, is this, you know, a, a plot line from a Hollywood spy yeah. movie? I can only imagine that governments around the world, especially in Washington, are watching this with extreme interest and concern because again what 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 sources are indicating is that this uh, accused had great visibility on on highly sensitive computer information high level government information and influence in in operations that relate to national security uh, directing RCMP officers on intelligence uh, operations Right. And so I understand as well uh, from some of the reports I've read by Global News this morning that he was an advisor to the former RCMP commissioner as well. We're informed by sources that that have uh, knowledge of national security that, yes, they say, uh, they indicate he was an elite advisor to Commissioner Paulson, very influential. And this would be, you know, advising on, on, on files of the utmost sensitivity with regards to foreign governments, how the Canada's government works, national security, organized crime, who to target, who not to target. So, again, the information is coming in fast, but uh, it seems that this is a very high-level case. Wow. Okay. And so what are the possibilities here then, Sam, for finding out more? Will he have to appear in court? Like, what happens now? Uh, he's scheduled to appear in court in Ottawa at uh, 2 p.m. Eastern Time this afternoon. So uh, I don't have to tell you that many, many reporters yeah. will be uh, attending that to see what occurs to get any more information that we can gather on the nature of the charges, 
to see if uh, uh, the accused says anything. So we're watching for that and uh, gathering information as quickly as we can. All right, Sam, listen, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Cindy. I'm sure there'll be more to come on that. That's Sam Cooper, National Investigative Journalist for Global News. This afternoon at 2.45 in St. John's Harbor, Terry Fox dipped his foot into the waters of the Atlantic Ocean. And one morning I woke up and I couldn't get out of bed. That day they told me I had a malignant tumor and that I had to have my leg amputated in four days. And I decided after my year and a half of chemotherapy that I'd try and run across Canada and raise as much money as I could. Boy, does that ever bring back memories for me. That is the beginning of the Marathon of Hope. The story, of course, of Terry Fox, born in Manitoba, but raised right here in Port Coquitlam. He was 18 years old, just 18, when he was diagnosed with a type of bone cancer, forced to have his right leg amputated just above the knee. And as you heard him say there, after seeing the suffering of patients like him, he decided to organize his Marathon of Hope, run across Canada to raise money for cancer research. After 18 months, running more than 5,000 kilometers just to get ready, he started in St. John's, Newfoundland on April 12th of 1980. And you know, it was a little hard for him to get attention in the beginning, but donations did start to pour in. He ran about 42 kilometers a day. It's like a marathon a day is what he was doing uh, through the Atlantic provinces, through Quebec and through Ontario. He had a friend who was there promoting all of this and helping him out while it was going on. That friend is Bill Vigors. He acted as Terry Fox's public relations manager, uh, his confidant, helped him out all along the way. And he is joining us now to talk more about this. Bill, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for uh, talking about Terry. Does that bring back memories for you when you hear that? When I heard that speech, I can stand there and I can actually see him in front of me talking. How did you get to know? How did you meet him? I worked for the Cancer Society. I had just started for them. Uh, I'd only moved from small town Ontario to Toronto. And my boss uh, threw a one-paragraph letter on my desk one day and said, there's a kid running across Canada with one leg. Do you want to go and see what you can do for him? And you said, sure, I will. Yeah, and I, I I watched him from afar. He had just started in April, and uh, I followed uh, through reports back from the people who were working with him. Uh, things weren't working out very good. Uh, he, I heard he was getting discouraged. He got to Port of Basque. He made $10,000 in that town, which gave him the idea for $1 from each Canadian. And then the first time I talked to him was he had just landed on the mainland in Sheet Harbor, Nova Scotia. And he called me from a payphone. And I said, when you get to Ontario, what do you want to do? And remember, I've just moved to Toronto, small town guy. And he goes, well, I want to go to the Blue Jays game on the CN Tower. I want to meet Bobby Orr. I want to meet Daryl Sittler. And I want to meet Pierre Trudeau. And, of course, I kind of, he couldn't see it. But I, okay. I said, call me back tomorrow, I'll see what I can do. And when he called back the next day from the, another payphone, payphones were cell phones in those days. Yeah. And I said, okay, Sittler's on, the Blue Jays are on, CN Tower is on, uh, Orr's uh, not going to be in Toronto, but he'll find us on the road, and I can't find Trudeau. Now, we did. You find, did manage to make that happen. We did find Mr. Trudeau, and we made that happen, too. So I, what I wanted to do is give him some hope. Yeah. Uh, that you make it as far as here and we'll make it happen. And then I very first met him in Edmonton's, Edmonston, New Brunswick at 4 o'clock in the morning. 
And uh, I had traveled overnight, and I slept in the back of the car. And the boys come out of the motel room, and I've used a sleeping bag or a cleaning bag, plastic yeah. cleaning bag as a blanket. And I get out of the back of the car, and the first thing out of Doug Allward, Terry's friend, was, you're the guy from the Cancer Society? <laughs> they were used to guys with suits and ties, and, right. and here I was in T-shirts and the dirty jeans. We know how heroically Terry battled to make this happen. September 1st, 1980 was when Terry Fox ran his last mile for the Marathon of Hope. And, you know, throughout the run and the months before, turns out that Terry had been neglecting his medical appointments because he believed that the cancer wasn't going to come back. But then doctors in Thunder Bay had confirmed that it had spread from his legs to his lungs, and he was left so weak that he was unable to continue on. I remember watching this on the news that night. Here's Terry Fox speaking with reporters on the final day of the Marathon of Hope. And I had noticed a little bit of hardness in breathing, and at the end, near the end of the day, at 18 miles, um, I was coughing and choking and had pain in my neck and my chest. And I did three more miles, and I, had to, I decided I had to go see the doctor. And I was discovered then that uh, I had primary, originally I had primary cancer in my knee three and a half years ago. And uh, that the cancer had spread. And now I've got cancer in my lungs. And uh, we got to go home and try, and try and do some more treatment. Bill, that must have been such a tough day. A horrible day. Um, but I have to tell you a story to, to tell you what Terry was like. Mm-hmm. Uh, following that uh, press conference, we loaded into the ambulance to head to the airport. And uh, it was myself and mom and dad and a reporter, and uh, needless to say, Mom and Dad were very upset, and at one point, Raleigh started saying, this is so unfair, this is so unfair, this is not right. And Terry looked at him and said, Dad, I'm no different than anybody else. Maybe now people will understand why I did it. And he was concerned that uh, he had be put up on a pedestal as a hero and he realized that people were now going to watch him battle cancer he had told me i had never had anybody in my family prior to that with cancer um and uh, he knew that people were now going to have to watch him go through chemo and radiation and really find out what cancer was all about and yet that was something that I don't think we talked about publicly before. Like people obviously had had cancer and they went through these treatments, but they had to almost like suffer quietly and silently because it wasn't talked about. Yes, exactly. Um, another thing that never happened before, you never saw an amputee in shorts. That was unheard of. And he changed people's attitude on that too. Uh, which brings me to the runs being all around the world. Yeah. In Cuba, about two and a half million people run in the Terry Fox run every March. Really? And I asked once why it was so big in Cuba, and that was the answer, that before they learned about Terry Fox, if you got cancer, it was a taboo subject. In that country, you just didn't talk about it. And Terry brought it to the forefront and changed people's attitude. 
We know that Terry passed away from cancer on June 28th, 1981. He was just 22 years old, but you know he's never been forgotten in anyone's minds. The Terry Fox Run, of course, is coming up this weekend, Sunday, September 15th. It's the annual charitable 3K, 10K walk run event. Uh, it's taking place at uh, Separately Park and Separately Park. There's, there's Terry Fox Runs everywhere, aren't there? Terry Fox Runs everywhere. They're all around the world. And uh, I am so honored to be at English Bay this year. That's where he planned to put his leg into the ocean. He was going to continue on to Victoria. Yeah. But for me, it's I've never been there for the run because I'm always at some place at another run. And to be there, and again, I would be remiss if I did not mention that Izzy Sharp, the founder of Four Seasons, sent Terry Fox a letter in 1980 saying, Terry, I'm going to organize an annual run until we can find a cure. Are you good with this? And Terry was still alive. It was actually in November of 1980. Yeah. And that's how the run started. And here in Vancouver, the English Bay Run has been run for 39 years by the staff volunteers um, at, at, the, at the Four Seasons here. That's and, amazing. And, and I have to say thank you. And I have to say thank you to all the volunteers who make all of these runs happen. And I also want to say specifically a thank you to teachers because Terry's legacy is alive today because they've been able to use Terry as a teaching tool, as perseverance, Mm -hmm. honesty, sincerity, that one person can make a difference. But that's always been the case. I was in grade three at Clovedale Elementary when the Marathon of Hope was happening. And we talked about Terry Fox in class every day. Uh, you know, watching it, keeping track of him. Where is he today? And it's, it seems like it's always been that way. There's something he struck a chord with kids. It's always been very integrated into the schools to talk about Terry Fox. He related to children better than adults, uh, even on the run. Really? Um, on the run, my, my children at the time, who were eight and nine years old, accompanied us from Montreal to Thunder Bay. And he, at the end of the day, would spend a lot of time just playing with them. Uh, One time in Sault Ste. Marie, we came back to the main hotel, and uh, we had to leave him and Doug out at a small motel on the highway, and my eight-year-old son was nowhere to be found. And uh, we called the motel. Doug comes to the phone, and he said, uh, Terry hid Patrick under the bed until you guys left. They've gone fishing. <laughs> Such great stories that you have there. Is are you ha- like you must be happy to know that the, his memory is still thirty nine years later, still so vivid for people. It, it is. It's um, it's amazing how his story, his legacy, has continued. Again, I go to another run in in China. I was there three years ago. Eight thousand Chinese students wearing the same shirt that was here in Canada, except in Chinese. And for me to talk to them and for them to tell me how Terry affected them and how much they respected him. And uh, he's the perfect Canadian hero, self-effacing, humble, and uh, a guy who just went out and did it. Well, Bill, thanks for helping us remember him in this unique way today. We really appreciate your time. Thank you. And I have to say, it's probably going to rain Sunday. <laughs> Shouldn't deter anybody if that no, happens. No, he could run in the snow and the sleet and the rain and just, you'll get a little wet, but have a fun time. There are so many runs across British Columbia. 
go to one. Thank you. And that is, on that note, excellent advice. If you want to head to the one that Bill's going to be at, which is uh, down at English Bay, uh, registration opens at 8 a.m. The run begins at 10. Check it out online for more information. Bill, thank you so much. Thank you. I love that song. Plus, we have a harvest moon today. I'll talk about that in a moment, but just quickly wanted to read this email from Dave who wrote me to say, Simi, my mom was a no-nonsense farm girl, and I don't remember ever seeing her cry when I was a kid. But when the TV news announced that Terry Fox had died, she sat on the couch and cried for three hours. Dave, I am so with you on that. I agree with you completely. Look, that is, I think, sums up the impact that Terry Fox had. Uh, so once again, encouraging people to take part in the Terry Fox run coming up this Sunday. As Bill Vigorous just said, it's going to rain, but hey, that would never have deterred Terry Fox, and it shouldn't deter anybody from participating in the Terry Fox run this weekend. Now let's talk about today. Today, yes, Harvest Moon coming up. It's also Friday the 13th. So what is so scary about Friday the 13th? Why do people get freaked out about it? Other than, of course, the horror movies. Well, Nikki Wright-Meyer takes a look at the history of this particular day. Today is Friday the 13th. If you're not superstitious, then you probably aren't bothered by what the calendar says. But either way, you certainly know what it means. Today is supposed to be an unlucky day. Friday the 13th happens at least once every year, when the 13th day of the month falls on a Friday. But it can happen up to three times a year, such as in 2015. The concept of an unlucky day or number is not exclusive to our culture. In Spanish-speaking countries, it's Tuesday the 13th that you really have to watch out for. Same for the Greeks. After all, the fall of Constantinople in the Fourth Crusade occurred on Tuesday, April 13th, 1204. There's actually a name for the phobia of the number 13. Triskaidekaphobia. And if you're afraid of Friday the 13th, to be specific, that's known as Periscavida Catria Phobia. Yeah, that's the one. Periscavidecatriophobia. As I was saying, why are we so afraid of a day? Well, it may relate back to religion. The Bible says there were 13 people at the Last Supper on the 13th day of that calendar month, the night before Jesus' death on Good Friday. Then there's the theory that Friday the 13th is unlucky because on Friday the 13th, October 1307, the French King Philip IV arrested hundreds of the Knights Templar. It's worth noting, however, that neither of these possible origins immediately caught on. It wasn't until centuries later that people began to form ideas around this being an unlucky date, referencing these events from the past. But no matter where we got the idea from, the modern effects of this date are very real. It's estimated millions of people have some sort of fear relating to today, making this the most feared date in history. And if you too are afraid of Friday the 13th, be forewarned. There will be two Friday the 13ths in 2020, but 2021 and 2022 will have just one occurrence each. <sighs> For CKNW, I'm Nikki Reitmeyer. 
That's adorable. Yeah, Friday the 13th, we're all scared of that. But what makes this one also more unique is the fact that we're also getting a harvest moon tonight. And that's the first time that a harvest moon has fallen on Friday the 13th since October of 2000. So yeah, that's a a long time. They call it the harvest moon, that's what the old farmer's almanac calls it, uh, because it's closest to the autumnal equinox and it comes, the name comes from like the extra light that it provides at nighttime, uh, meaning, I guess back in the day, a little extended harvesting time for farmers because the moon is so big and so bright on this day. Apparently right after midnight is the best time to see it, but I'm not sure we're going to get an opportunity with the kind of overcast skies that we are seeing there and the soggy weekend that we have in the forecast for us. Wet weather uh, continuing all through next week. So might not get to see the harvest moon, but it is up there. Let's get you an update now on what is clearly the top national story that we've been talking about today. Learned about this a couple of hours ago that the RCMP has charged one of its own with several offenses under Canada's official secrets law. Cameron Ortiz was charged under three sections of the Security of Information Act and with two criminal code offenses as well. Uh, He made a court appearance in the last hour. We wanted to learn more about that now. So joining us is Amanda Connolly, political reporter for Global News. Amanda, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So has the court appearance happened yet or what's going on with that? Yeah, so Mr. Ortis appeared in court just at the top of the hour here, as you were saying, down the street from our Global News Bureau in Ottawa, and he appeared very briefly via video link. He has been remanded into police custody at this time. He's been there ever since he was arrested yesterday on these five charges. Now we're hearing seven charges that the Crown has laid out. And what we really saw in that appearance, again, it was very brief. The Crown essentially laid out kind of the, the very high level sense of what they are looking at here, the five counts that we, we had already known about, plus the two additional ones, and saying that they were uh, they were looking at this as a case of Mr. Ortis having communicated to people that he should not have been communicating with. So that's really kind of summing up what we know officially at this point. There's still a lot of unanswered questions that we've been working hard to work our sources all afternoon and try and find out whatever else we can about this case. Right. I'd imagine, Amanda, it was quite a scramble when this story broke this morning. It certainly was, yeah. Immediately, um, when this came out, I mean, we, we had kind of confirmed this before RCMP as well had officially put anything out on this. So it was certainly a bit of a scramble to to uh, make sure that we had everything out yeah. there. And, of course, RCMP came out very shortly after that saying that they were going to be confirming the name of the individual, the five charges, and really having uh, no further comment on the case at this time. And so what we have been able to learn, though, so far from various other sources that we've been speaking to is that Mr. Ortis was a uh, what's being described to us as a the most elite advisor to former RCMP Commissioner Bob Paulson on issues related to national security and sensitive investigations. And so really others are calling him a linchpin, uh, having a linchpin role in these kind of very high level operational intelligence cases. And so there's a lot of questions being asked right now about um you know, why these, uh, why, why this is happening and why, how this yeah. is able to, to take place. Right. So walk us through what we know about the investigation at this point. Like, have we heard anything about how long this was going on for, how big this was? Yeah, so we saw, we were able to see the charge sheet for the first time when Mr. Ortis appeared in court today. And they, those charges really laid out that RCMP 
um, are alleging here that these offenses go back to 2015. So we're looking at a number of years here in this case where Mr. Ortis is alleged to have um, various, and again, some of them are 2015, some of them are 2017, 2018. So you have kind of a varied time frame here in which RCMP are alleging these activities took place. And they're looking specifically at uh, things like unauthorized leaking of sensitive operational information, breach of trust, unauthorized use of a computer, um, obtaining, retaining, or gaining access to information, possessing a device to conceal that information as the kind of core, some of the core ones that they're, they're really focusing in on here. Right. And there's really no precedent for this, is Amanda? Because we've been thinking about this. And we, there's no other case that we've ever heard of like this before. I would certainly say at this level, no, you're right. This is, this is um, a, a massively significant case right now, or at least, like, of course, has the potential to be if, if the Crown moves forward with these charges that we're seeing here. Uh, there have been a number of cases here in Canada over the past couple of years, so with uh, what we kind of refer to as insider threats. Uh, in 2011, of course, listeners might recall the case of Jeffrey Delisle. He was caught selling secrets to the Russian embassy in Ottawa and sentenced to 20 years. He's already been paroled for that. Uh, there was also the case of a individual in 2013 who was arrested for um, allegedly trying to pass secrets about Canadian patrol ships to the Chinese government. Uh, that individual had been a sub, uh, working for a company that was a subcontractor to Irving Shipbuilding, of course, one of the very large shipbuilding firms in the country doing uh, Coast Guard and military refurbishment work for the, uh, for the, the, the naval ships. So you, you have seen kind of a couple of very high-profile cases here but uh, nothing certainly on this scale or with the potential to really rock the Ottawa establishment as much as this case does. Yeah, and speaking of the Ottawa establishment, uh, have we heard any comments from any of the politicians on the campaign trail today? Uh, we're certainly still waiting to hear those so far. It's been a bit of a, a crazy afternoon so far imagine, here. Yeah. Um, but we're certainly expecting that as soon as there is a, an opportunity to put those questions to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and that Liberal Party leader, Justin Trudeau, um, that we will be doing so. We have a team on the campaign bus with the Liberal Party right now. And so that will be, of course, one of the top questions that he will be facing from reporters once he does take questions. All right. Sounds good, Amanda. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. That's Amanda Connolly, our political reporter for Global News, covering the story right now. You know, almost 12 years ago, we first heard the name Robert Jakansky. It was October 14th, 2007, that this Polish man was coming to live in Canada and he was arriving at Vancouver International Airport. He ended up dying there after being pinned, handcuffed, and tasered multiple times by RCMP. Once people saw the video of the whole situation, it really opened their eyes. I mean, here was a man clearly confused and agitated. He was lost at the airport. He didn't speak the language. He needed help. And it ended tragically. Now, of course, that story was all over the news, right? Uh, caused an inquiry, caused RCMP officers to be charged with perjury. We have been talking about it kind of news-wise for 12 years. But then we saw this story this week, and I thought, boy, is this ever interesting. And it turns out it's not just through a news lens that people have been watching this story. Somebody watched this story years ago and thought that it had all the elements of an opera. 
And that is exactly what J. Andrew Wainwright did. He sat down. He said he started it started as a poem, and it ended up being an opera, the tragic story of Robert Jakansky. And that opera is actually going to be on stage tonight. It's playing for three nights in Chicago. Uh, it has not. It, it played briefly in Halifax about four or five years ago, but it has not been put on as a production in Canada since then. And now it's getting some international recognition for being put on the stage in Chicago. So we wanted to talk to Andrew Wainwright about this. How did you come up with the idea? How does one write an opera about a news story like this? We had a chance to catch up to him. It's Andrew Wainwright, who wrote the libretto for the opera, I Will Fly Like a Bird. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this really fascinating topic. I have to ask you, how did you get the idea to do this? Well, quite frankly, it came from watching Robert Jakansky be tasered night after night on national television. And I just felt that the man deserved more than that as a, as, a, as a testimony to his life. And that inspired you to start writing? It inspired me to write a, um, a poem, a lot, what was initially a long poem about him. And uh, then I gradually realized that it was being written for music and that opera would perhaps be the best way to tell the story. Now, a lot of us obviously watch those videos that you were talking about there over and over again. And many people were moved by it. What did you feel like that made you feel like this was poetry? What was it about his story that got to you? Well, the fact that he was coming, he was trying to immigrate to Canada, uh, which should have a, an open-door policy within reason, that he was uh, about to be met by his mother, who waited for him at the airport for hours and was told that he hadn't arrived and went back home to Kamloops when uh, he was already... Uh, being accosted by the police. Um, so, I mean, it was, it was a tragedy. And uh, it was, it, everything went wrong that could have gone wrong. Uh, and uh, the result was his death. And that is like an opera, when you think about it, when you put it that way. It's a tragedy. Well, the intensity and the emotional... Um, let me rephrase that. The intensity and the, the uh, immediacy of opera, because it's underwritten by a powerful musical score, really emphasizes... I think, the kinds of stories that the Jukansky one represents. Right. When did you know that you had more than a poem on your hands? When I finished it, uh, I, I realized that I had been writing it with uh, some music in mind, um, quite specifically Mahler's uh, Songs of the Earth, um, although I, I needed to have original music written for it. Uh, and I was put in touch with John Plant, who's a composer living in Nova Scotia, Quebec-born, uh, and... Uh, he read the uh, libretto and uh, decided that he, he would write the, uh, the score for it. So we got together and discussed it, and then it took him the better part of a year to compose the, uh, the piece for a string quartet, piano, and clarinet. And the first time you heard it then kind of put together, how did you feel? It was very powerful. I went to his studio and listened to him play the score, and, and uh, we had no... Um, no singers, of course, but uh, you could imagine how it was going to unfold on the stage. That was in 2012 when it was produced at the Scotia Festival of Music. And as I think I, you might be aware, we brought Mrs. Sasowski, Robert's mother, out for the performance to Halifax. Mm -hmm. This is very powerful. When you first describe this project to people then, Andrew, what, what did they say? Well, I think the fact that there were a couple of factors here which um, lead me up to talking about the uh, 
taking up of this uh, opera in the United States because we tried to to convince people in Canada, various opera companies, that it was worth doing. But because John Plant and I were relatively unknown figures in the opera world, uh, and because there's a fragmentation of consciousness in this country, the provincializing of consciousness, quite frankly, and by that I mean that um, I was asked at the time on a national CBC radio program, why as a Nova Scotia writer I was writing about a BC story. Somebody, I, I just couldn't believe it. Somebody asked you that? Yes, a, a well-known national radio host asked me that. And I, I just about levitated. I mean, I was so angry about this. I mean, to, to categorize the, the Jukansky story as a BC story and to assume that because somebody comes from another part of the country that they can't write about it with any degree of knowledge or, or um, attachment is ludicrous, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, well, but, but, but it was produced in, in Nova Scotia. Unfortunately, there were people in Nova Scotia who took up the cause. And after, in, after the 2012 one-time performance, three years later, it was staged by Opera Nova Scotia uh, over, um, I think, two nights or three nights uh, of performance. So, you know, the, the local gets it done, but, but it should be done on a bigger stage. That's why I'm really pleased that the United States Opera Company in Chicago, the Thompson Street Opera Company, picked it up. Yeah, that's going to be, and I'd love to see it. That's going to be huge. Do you, do you wish that you could bring it to BC as well? I know people in Vancouver would like to see this. Well, we tried to we tried to interest people in BC about it, and to no avail. I would really like to see it done as performed at the Vancouver airport. Boy, that would be something, wouldn't it? That would really make a statement. Uh, when people, do you think people in the United States will understand the story in the same way with those big themes that you're talking about, the overarching themes? Well, we're living in the era of Donald Trump's go back to where you came from. So I think that the question in, in the Mexican border wall, I think that the question of immigration in the United States is is uh, obviously fairly more than fairly present at the time. And, and this is a story about somebody trying to get into a country legitimately uh, and being turned away. Right. It, it, it's You're right. It has overarching themes then for our times. It, you can see why this would kind of work in other countries as well. Like, why not Europe at this point? I think that's a good, very good point. Yeah. So, uh, how often does that happen to you, Andrew? Where you hear a story, or you watch something on the news, and you are inspired to do this kind of work? Well, this is the only time this has happened. I mean, I'm a writer. I've always been a writer all my life, a, a poet and a novelist. But uh, I'd never written an opera libretto before. It just seemed that something happened, something clicked um, to, to make me respond to what I was watching and, and I felt that, that there needed to be more said than was being reported on the news. Um, but it doesn't happen often. It takes a very special set of circumstances. Was it a learning experience for you? You said you'd never done this before, so how did you how did you learn as you were going? Well, the learning experience really came when I met John Plant and learned how, how um, what, what I was trying to say in words could be transposed into a musical setting. And then subsequently, when it was staged in 2015 um, by directed by Opera Nova Scotia, directed by uh, David Overton, um, who is uh, a member of the Performing Arts Center at Dalhousie University, uh, I recognized that I was allowed to come to the rehearsals and I, I was asked about characterization and so on. And I, I became part of a much larger artistic or creative expression which you don't often get as a writer. You sit, you sit more or less by yourself as a writer and do your work. But once you get exposed to that larger musical world and theater world, um, it's, it's very rewarding. 
So what happens after this? Is it going to be in Chicago? It's getting a lot of attention. Uh, do you hope that parlays into more showings? Well, we'll see. I mean, it took it took a number of years for this to happen. Um, I'm glad that I will be glad if it receives critical attention and audience attention in Chicago. It's only running for three nights. Uh, the uh, I think the 12th, 13th, and 14th, maybe one more. Um, so it depends how people respond to it. But I I know that John Plant submitted the the libretto and the score to a call for for such things from the American Federation of Composers. And uh, the Thompson Street Opera Company people told us that our opera was by far the number one choice of all the submissions. So there's there's an audience for it. Well, I would hope to see it one day myself. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. That's J. Andrew Wainwright. He wrote the libretto for the opera that is called I Will Fly Like a Bird. It's a story of Robert Jakansky and the horrible circumstances that happened, the situation that unfolded when he arrived in this country on October 14th, 2007. This opera is being performed over three nights in Chicago. Tonight is one of those nights. No dates in Canada to see this. As you heard Andrew say, about four or five years ago, it was performed in Halifax in Nova Scotia a couple of years ago. Uh, it has not been kind of performed formed in any other part of the country since then. Well, I am greatly enjoying the Where We Live series because I'm hearing about all sorts of great little places and neighborhoods that maybe I don't always get a chance to go to. And that's the whole idea behind it. For instance, today we're talking about Commercial Drive. We know there's great food there. There's great culture there. There's live music, some amazing venues, just a fun place to go wander around and to live in that neighborhood as well. So Eric Chapman is taking us to the Havana restaurant and behind it actually to the theater, which is a regular spot for top comics and improv. Have a listen. East Van, home of everything. From breweries to hipsters, they flock to Commercial Drive for the patchouli incense, homemade kombucha, and to get yelled at by the old Italian dude sitting out front of a bruised cappuccino bar for dressing like weirdos and having man buns. East Van is an attitude. It's a way of life. There are many cool places in East Van, but the heart is Commercial Drive. The drive is known for its music and theater culture, bookended with the Rio Theater at Broadway and Commercial at one end, and the York Theater at the other end. And many more not far in between and just a little to the right, including the legendary Wise Hall, where you can catch a punk show downstairs and a full 10-piece funk band upstairs, Falconetti's Live Music and Sausages, wonderful, and Frederico's Supper Club for some dancing. Art, culture, everywhere. But somewhere in between, just across from Grandview Park, is a place called the Havana. A taste of Cuban culture and they mix a damn fine mojito. But if you wander past the names carved into the wall in the dining area, through the bar, just past that, there's a podium in front of a door on the right. Through that little door is a little-known gem called the Havana Theater. A 60-seater that hosts some of the best comedy and improv in the city. I mean, what kind of awesome place serves delightful Cuban fare only to have your night end with some wonderful stand-up comedy or improv. Sounds like a dream. Well, it's not. I caught up with the theater manager, Alastair Cook, who is a vet in the theater world of Vancouver, and we started from the beginning, including the proper title used for the Havana Theater. Uh, Everybody's favorite 
arts venue on the drive. <laughs> it is everybody's favorite. That's a good way to put it. I think you hit it right there. I mean, this is uh, an intimate, special mm-hmm. space for the arts that uh, a lot of Vancouverites don't know about, but I think people within the cultural community, they certainly know about it. Uh, on, the, on the logo here, it says established 1996, okay. the same time as the, the restaurant, and uh, you, you, can't, you can't really get much more... Um, much more of a human experience than being together with people. It really is like no other. If this was a version of diners, drive-ins, and dives, this would be classic diner with a little bit of dive mixed in. We're a little bit more DIY. Mm-hmm. We're not quite CBGB's level, but right. uh, we're, uh, we're, we certainly have a, a presentation level that matches the front, and yeah. uh, the quality of work that's coming into the theater now is outstanding. So yeah. we're pretty pumped. Yeah, it's great to it's it's just great to have art in hidden spots too. You know, like you you, you walk around the corner, and you find it because lots of the time you get introduced to things that way too. So it's nice to have that sort of thing here. Okay, we've established the venue is dope, but in small places like this, in the heart of communities, you can be hanging out, and the most unexpected people might show up. The the things that I would recommend if you've never been to Havana before. Uh, Graham Clark is one of Canada's best stand-ups, and for the last decade, he's been doing our Monday night 9 p.m. Laugh Gallery show. There are some of the best stand-up comedy, uh, the best stand-up comics in the country. I mean, Ivan Decker, who won a Juno, and oh, I, he comes in here and everything. Oh, I, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I think he even had uh, many, many years ago Flight of the Concords, and like people drop yeah. in all the time. See, and yeah, that's again with a space like this, you get those kind of. It's like the comedy cellar or something, you know, it just reminds me of that in my mind where like, like guys like that will just pop in. So if you're just hanging out, you know, oh, you, you're in the restaurant, you see him walk by, you're like, oh, I guess we're going to a show now. Ivan Decker's here. And it's still criminally uh, priced uh, at uh, $5. Really? Like Graham just won't oh raise God. the price, but the quality of work is just amazing. Wow. So if you really want to impress anyone, <laughs> take them for a cumin sandwich, get a commercial colada, and walk them to the back to show them the hidden gem that is the Havana Theater. You know, here on the show, we often like to bring you stories that are unique, right? The stories that you read about on there, maybe you see the headline and you go, what is the deal with that? That's actually our next story. That's one of these ones coming up right now. It has to do with what happened on Wednesday afternoon at the school district in Fort St. John. Now, I don't want to give all this away. So let's have a chat with Superintendent Stephen Petrucci with the Fort St. John School District. He joins us now. Thank you so much for being here. No problem. Good afternoon, Simi. What kind of week have you had? It was definitely quite a week. Um, as you can imagine, you know, school startup is already quite busy and, and anxious for people. And then on Wednesday afternoon, we had a, an unexpected visitor in our, in our board office. <laughs> okay, let's talk about that. Stephen, describe to me what happened on Wednesday afternoon. Well, Simi, it was about towards the end of the day, around quarter to five, and uh, people were getting ready to leave when we heard a large crash in our uh, entrance foyer. And sure enough, a moose had crashed through the glass door and, uh, you know, shook itself off and then proceeded to make its way to the boardroom. Like just wandering around? 
Yeah, and um, our, our building is such that it's divided into two sides. So it headed towards the boardroom. And so we got started to get people out, phoned the authorities, and went around to the other side to start getting them out as well. It was uh, a bit of a frantic period for a few minutes. No kidding, because like a moose can be very big, Stephen. How big was this one? So this was actually, it was a juvenile, I believe about a, a one-year-old. So it's sort of in between a calf and a full-grown moose. And uh, so I believe it's the time of the year that they sort of strike out on their own. And, uh, you know, as we were getting people out on the other side, uh, I could see it sort of poke its head around the corner. And uh, so I, you know, quite simply opened the door and, and coaxed it out. So you managed to just say, here you go, like, head out this way. Well, and I think it probably saw that it was outside and, you know, may have come, may have galloped through there regardless, but I just sort of held the door open and uh, sure <laughs> enough, it came through. And, so you were uh, polite to the moose know, and the moose responded. Very, exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's like the old question, what do you do when a moose wants to get out of your building? Well, you know, you let it out. Yeah, you sure. open the door, you open the door and let yeah. it go. Stephen, yeah. have you ever heard of something like this happening before? Never, Simi. This is incredibly unusual. And, uh, you know, everybody was safe. So by the end of it, we're all having a pretty good laugh. And uh, uh, my colleagues, you know, have come up with all kinds of uh, nicknames for me as well, too. So it's, it's, it's been actually a pretty fun couple of days. Oh, I'm sure those nicknames are going to stick, Stephen. I know they would if yeah. that happened around here. So tell me about the area, though. Like, is it often like, do you see a moose in the parking lot? Like, is it, do you see moose wildlife like that just wandering around? Yeah, actually, it's not unusual at all to see deer and moose wandering around the city of Fort St. John. Um, it's not necessarily an everyday occurrence, but but not unusual, no. But right. you know, ent- entering a building, uh, I've never heard of that before. And uh, I'll be quite satisfied if we don't have to uh, you know, go through that again. <laughs> Were you a bit scared, though, too? Because like moose can be very dangerous. Uh, if They're unpredictable, and they're yeah. just so big. If they had, If this one had gotten quite frantic, it could have turned out quite differently. Uh, absolutely. In fact, they can kick quite a bit and be dangerous. And, uh, you know, fortunately, when they followed its tracks, we could sort of see that it had made its way around, didn't do any real damage. In fact, entered a couple of offices uh, over on that side before it finally started to make its way towards the exit. So uh, he wasn't any, in any great panic. And uh, so nothing got uh, destroyed. Was anybody in those offices? Because I can't imagine sitting there doing your work on a Wednesday afternoon, then looking up because a moose walked into the room. There was indeed staff in those offices, and some of them got out, and others saw what was coming and closed the door. And so there were a few frantic minutes there. Although, as they say, you know, people up in, in Fort St. John are quite used to this happening, just not necessarily outside their office. No kidding. Okay, so how's the window now? Like, you must tape it up, and will you be making moose precautions in the future? Well, you know, I hope this isn't something we have to mitigate for. Uh, you know, I, I don't think it'll happen again. But, you know, by the next morning, uh, our facilities had already replaced the door and cleaned up the mess, and it was like it never happened. So uh, we're just in the process of reviewing some of the video footage, which, uh, you know, shows the moose crashing through, and we're oh going to see what else we can capture. So it's, uh, it's quite interesting. No kidding. So any word on the moose? Like, is he okay? Everything all right? Yeah, I mean, it was slightly injured, I think, on the hoof from the glass, but uh, the conservation officer that was called followed it that evening because it sort of hung around in close-by neighbourhoods, so I'm not actually quite sure what the result of all that was. Right, but word is, you haven't heard anything bad, so it seems like everything is okay. 
No, I hope it made it away okay. I hope we're, so, we're, too. We're going, we're going for the miss. Stephen, I would really love to see this video, so I look forward to seeing it. So gl- <laughs> you betcha. glad that everybody's okay. Thanks so much for joining us. No problem. Have a great day, Cindy. You too. That is Superintendent Stephen Petrucci. He's with the Fort St. John School District. Can you imagine? Wednesday afternoon, getting ready to go home, getting up to 5 o'clock. All of a sudden, you hear a big crash, and there's a moose wandering through your workplace.